The views, information or opinions expressed in the following podcasts are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Any information provided is of a general nature only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. In particular, you should seek financial advice prior to making a decision. So for those on the line, uh, welcome and thank you for making the time to attend this session with uh, Joseph Healy. Before I do hand over to Joseph, I thought I'd update you all on sort of our commitment to the broker market and to your clients. So we are absolutely open for business and all our team are heavily engaged in the market supporting brokers, you know, their existing and prospect customers, you know, writing new lending, even in industries that have been impacted by the COVID restrictions. Uh, we continue to take a common sense approach to lending and core to that is knowing our, our mutual customers. Also, and no doubt our team would have explained in the past, you know, our approach is not policy led per se, rather a broad set of guidelines to operate within. And we continue to assess risk based on the four C's of credit. In saying that, and no doubt you guys would all appreciate, cash flow a lot of businesses have been has been heavily impacted. And this does emphasize the importance of character, particularly around management capability as is the capital within the business. So that's the that's the sort of pivot lens that we have um, at the moment. Uh, so on that, um, I'll throw it over to you, Joseph, if you'd like to add anything further um, and I'd say update, you know, our brokers, you know, on the business and I'd say more recently our recent capital raise. Sure, thanks, George. And let me just echo George's welcome to everybody. Really do appreciate you making the time to join us for this uh, webinar this morning. Actually, timing-wise, it's fantastic for us, of course, because some of you might have seen in this morning's press that we've announced uh, our third round of capital raising. And I'll come back to that in a second. But I want to just begin by saying, um, echoing George's comments about the importance of the relationship we have with our broker, with our, the broker community. It's pivotal to how we set this business up. We always saw our approach to be that of a strategic partner. That was the way that we drafted this business right back three, four years ago, uh, and our success uh, is really going to be a function of your success. So that relationship is, uh, and the centrality of that relationship remains critical to our success and to the future. It's a big part of, of the reason why investors decided to come in and continue to invest in the company, because we're able to demonstrate that we, we took the words or the theory of building strong relationships with brokers as, as a new player and turned it into practice. And of course, way back two, two and a half years ago, people kind of thought, well, the story sounds good, but will the broker community support you? Will you guys deliver? Will you build relationships? Will you demonstrate that you can walk the talk? And uh, I feel certainly from my vantage point um, that there's strong evidence that relation, those relationships are working exactly as we would want them to work uh, for our mutual success and for the success of our, our clients. So a big thank you for your your support to date. Let me talk a little bit about the capital raising um, because that's integral to how we're thinking about the future. You know, we we raised uh, 230 million, and that means over the course of the last 18 months, we've raised 770 million dollars of equity. That the the addition of the la the, the latest 230 allows us gives us enough capital to grow our balance sheet well north of $3 billion. 
and our balance sheet right now is about one point in terms of loans outstanding is about one point just under 1.7 so for the next in our view for the next six to nine months because we hope that we're going to be able to write over a billion and a billion and a half worth of lending over the next next six to nine months that that capital really underpins us on that journey and we anticipate coming back for more equity from our investors uh, most likely in the early part of uh, of 2021 and our investors all know that and they're very happy it's if we're growing the business uh, that's something that they're more than happy uh, to support uh, and um, you might again read in the press that we've got a very strong and well diversified investor base uh, investors out of out of New York, uh, Toronto, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Hong Kong, Singapore, Abu Dhabi. It's well diversified and they're all huge, huge institutions. So, you know, we, we wanted that from day one to have investors with deep pockets who were passionate about what we were doing and were, were able to support us as we as we demonstrated our success. So today is an important um, celebration for us. It's a pity we can't find somewhere to celebrate, but We'll, we'll postpone that for another time. But it's a great, great success. We, we were able to raise the equity at a higher valuation than we raised the equity uh, in July last year. Last year, we tried to raise 200 million, ended up taking 400 because demand was so strong. And the 230 that we raised uh, yesterday or confirmed yesterday is actually at a higher valuation. And that, the significance of that is that the bank banking market, as most of you will know, has seen equity valuation corrections of about 30 to 40 percent across the major four banks. So, you know, it's it's um, we're very pleased, but it sets us up. And, and the reason I'm emphasizing that is that when you look at us, you should feel really confident about our capacity to deliver. We're not going to be short of capital. We're not short of liquidity. Right, right now, we're we're taking in virtually a dollar of deposits for every dollar we're lending. We've got wholesale banking lines, including government facilities, well north of a billion dollars. So we're, you know, we're, we're kind of well positioned in what is a, you know, a, a very difficult market. We see this as an opportunity, not a risk. Putting aside the very serious health aspects of this crisis and focusing just on the business aspects, we, we very much subscribe to the view of let's not waste a crisis. Uh, we believe that the banking market is going to be a difficult place for many businesses to do business with just because of, of how overwhelmed they are with dealing with all the problems that their customer base has. Uh, and it creates an opportunity for us to really grow our business in a way that we probably wouldn't be able to in normal market conditions. So that's that's why the capital is important. Great. Thank you, Joseph. I think you you, you emphasised there the government investment more recently as well, um, and the timing of that um, was was quite positive. Hugely positive. I mean, we'd been we'd been talking to the government um, probably since about October last year because some of these facilities, securitisation facilities, for example, had been announced uh, in the middle of 2019, and we'd been talking to them about participating. We were the first. A lender to participate in one of the schemes. We were also uh, part of the $250,000 50% government guaranteed scheme. And there's a whole range of other facilities that the Reserve Bank have, have laid open to Juro should we need to use them so that we're never caught in a situation where we can't fund uh, the, lend the demands of, our, of uh, your customers and our customers. 
So I, I, I won't say too much more than that, and other than, you know, we are really well capitalized and we've got bucket loads of liquidity uh, and we're very keen to employ that in the SME economy. Thanks, Joseph. And uh, for those on the line, you would have received the update on our relief packages and also the government um, guarantee scheme. So if you need any more information, get in touch with our team. Um, shifting gears a little, Joseph, but it appears that the trans-Tasman restrictions between Australia and New Zealand might be lifted before we open our borders to the rest of the world. Um, and I know you sort of tend to live between here and New Zealand most of the time. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, there's both an economic case, strong economic case for it, but also there's an important symbolism. I mean, all of us are, you know, I mean, a week feels like a year just now, the way that we're kind of operating at a home and things are, you know, whilst the light at the end of the tunnel is getting lighter and bigger, uh, we still are waiting to get to start to see some return to whatever normality might look like. Getting Starting that flow between New Zealand and Australia is going to be important. I mean, a number of our customers have trans-Tasman businesses. Uh, it's such a big part of the Australian economy, a big part of the New Zealand economy is those trade flows and business flows. I mean, the banking system in New Zealand, uh, nine, ten, nine out of every $10 lent in, in New Zealand is lent by Australian-owned banking subsidiaries. So they're intricately linked eco uh, economies, in my view, and I think uh, it'll be a significant step in terms of Im improving positive feeling about the journey out of this current crisis if that trans-Tasman link opens up again. And, and my, my gut instinct is we might see that happening by the end of this month. And I think it came out about a week ago that I think it was the World Health Organization around the way Australia and New Zealand has dealt with the pandemic and also with the relief or the economic stimulus as well. So that's um, shown shown that the direction we've taken has been quite positive. Well, I think we're getting a lot of kudos because if you look at Australia, New Zealand and compare it to any of the other uh, countries around the world, uh, you know, we look as if we've just done an amazing job. You don't want to count your chickens, of course, because the problem is not totally gone. And there's a significant ec economic cost that only time will tell. I mean, the, there's an immediate health issue to make sure that the virus is, is contained and then eliminated. But the whole lockdown uh, situation has caused huge Ill health problems elsewhere in the, in the system, mental health problems in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if you read the reports from some of the agencies that are set up to help people going through mental health challenges, uh, they're just overwhelmed by calls. And there's fears that the longer this lockdown continues, that we could end up losing more lives. And I hesitate in you saying that, but, you know, the suicide rates and other yeah. implications of depression and mental health could significantly outnumber the casualties, the very disappointing and sad the casualties that we've seen as a result of this virus. So there is an, time will tell how to look at this picture, but that's not to imply criticism over what the government has done. The government was decisive, it needed to be, but you don't want people being too ideological about this now. I mean, things are definitely improving and it's important that we start allowing the economy and society to get back at slowly and sensibly cautiously in terms of distancing, but getting back into doing what we all want to be doing, and that's working and engaging with our friends and colleagues and business partners. 
Uh, and I think that the pressure for that to happen is going to grow louder and louder week by week. And again, I hope that at the weekend we'll hear mm -hmm. some more positive announcements about relaxation of the current um, constraints and controls that are being imposed. So, so two really important, so further to that, so two really important trading partners are the US and China. And as you would know, there's there's a lot of tension between them at the moment and, and it's escalating. Um, how do you see that impacting the recovery of the world economy and potentially bringing it back to or specifically to to Australia? Well, it's a big problem. I mean, it's important not to downplay this. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of political rhetoric between the, the Americans and the Chinese that was um, amplified overnight by uh, Trump suggesting that that there will be penalties imposed on China because of the virus. And then, of course, you've got Australia coming in, making critical comments also. All of this affects relationships, affects trade flows. Uh, the, the, our economy, the global economy is so dependent on a strong China. So I think that an escalation of what is currently a geopolitical tit for tat, an escalation of that is in no one's interest. And, 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 I, and I really wish that Australia had not got involved in, in that debate because it's far too early to start asking for inquiries into what ha what has happened, what was the the sources causes of this virus. Let's deal with the virus, sort it out, eliminate it, and then go back calmly and sensibly, and impartially, and see what lessons there are to be learned. But to politicise it just seems to me to be a pretty pretty poor uh, judgment on the part of political leaders in the United States, and and unfortunately echoed by some of the comments made here, which could damage us. And, and Trump's well known for, for you know, shooting from the hip, so that's not helping the the current issues. I completely agree. Um, so given the, on that, so given the huge debt we as a nation face, you know, there has been calls for structural reform around in, in, you know, industrial relations and tax to get productivity improvements. However, details of proposed changes and sort of benefits have been lied on. Yeah. What reforms do you think we need and what do you expect to see benefits from these reforms? Well, just stepping back for a second, I mean, if you look at, at all major crises over the last few centuries, they've always acted as a catalyst for major reform. I mean, the GFC didn't result in huge system-wide reform, but it did result in a huge reform of the banking system with much more capital uh, much more nationalised business models rather than global business models, and a much heavier mm. hand of regulatory, regulatory involvement in the running of mm -hmm. banks. So that that was a significant change from the GFC. I anticipate that globally we'll see huge tra huge transformation in the way that many economies operate. I mean, no government will want to waste the crisis that it's mm. presented as a mandate to do something that is that in normal political environments and democracies uh, are very difficult to do. So I, I envisage that the, we'll see big changes globally. I think two things are certain, that government's going to be a much bigger part of the economy um, in, in all developed economies than it has been since the Second World War. We're going to see a much, much bigger involvement of government. The second certainty, I think, is there's going to be a new, what I would call a social contract between government, business and society. And, and that will take many forms, but government's going to be much more directly through regulation or through other forms. Uh, that visible hand of government influence is going to be much strongly evident 
in the way that we live and in the way that business conducts itself. Mm-hmm. And 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 government will use the excuse that given the sheer size of the debt burden that has been taken on to deal with this crisis, that it has to do something about that debt burden. And the only way that it can really do something about that debt burden is to initiate a whole series of structural reforms. So it's difficult to predict. There'll definitely be reform of the taxation system because the one thing that we can say for certain over the course of the next decade, certainly over the next five years, is that taxes are going to be going up. And and there's a limit to how much taxes you can want to take out of the household sector. There's pressure to reduce corporate tax, but I think we'll see significant reform in taxation. We'll see significant investment in infrastructure to help stimulate the economy. Uh, and I think there'll be a significant set of reforms across the whole economy. So that does. I'm not specific, George, in, in my answer there, because my guess is as good as other people's guess. But I would say with some high level of um, confidence that big government is going to be a big feature of the world that we live in going forward. And higher levels of taxation in aggregate uh, will also be a feature as they try to deal with the significant debt burdens that all major economies have taken on. And we're seeing a little a bit of that with the way the government is, well, not a little, but a lot, but with the government and, and their views with the banks at the moment here in Australia around paying out dividends. And you've seen that sort of play out over the last coming, over the last few weeks as well. Well, I think that's an, a great illustration of my point that after the GFC, yeah. the regulator as an agency of government became much more directly involved in the way that banks operate. Uh, and that's only going to get more and more and more the case. But actually, it's an interesting scenario when you get banks which ostensibly are privately owned companies owned by the shareholders and you get a regulator, as was the case in in the United Kingdom recently as well, you get the regulator coming in saying, we don't want you to pay dividends. And those dividends are essentially, in a capitalist economy, they're the property of the shareholders, Mm -hmm. you know, who have a claim on those dividends. So when a regulator comes in and says you can't pay them or sends a strong signal that you can't pay them, then... That's an illustration of the point that I was making. That, mm-hmm. that you know, these there's been a change in the dynamics between government and key industries like banking, and that is only going to intensify. And APRA, of course, is at the forefront as a government agency uh, in implementing those reforms and holding banks more, much more truly to the social license that government and taxpayers give the banks. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the UK there have they've done something similar. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a little? Yeah, well, in the UK, the the uh, Bank of England um, wrote to all of the major banks. In fact, in the case of Barclays Bank, two days before they were due to pay the dividends. So this, the, the letter went out on the Wednesday and Barclays was, was scheduled to, which had announced its dividend and was scheduled to pay its dividend uh, on the Friday. Uh, and the Bank of England said, we don't want you to pay any dividends. Um, and so they didn't. It's an example uh, when it comes to the way that regulators and banks work. What you tend to see is that what happens in London or in the UK is mirrored here in Australia. There's a very strong close working relationship between the two regulatory agencies and the two banking systems are uncannily similar. So, you know, there's that, that, that where I tend to look at what's happening in London and I say, well, what, let's just watch, watch and see yeah. if a similar thing happens here. And nine times out of ten, it does. 
Yeah, exactly. Follow through. So, you know, the current situation has also exposed some, you know, weaknesses in Australia's supply chain and perhaps an over-reliance on other countries for pharmaceuticals, you know, pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, for examples, you know. Do you think this will lead governments to be more protectionist with tariffs in future? Also, and to elaborate, um, you know, what industries do you think may benefit from protectionism and uh, do you th- or do you think uh, this may undermine any productivity gains from the structural reforms? Well, I, I think it's a great question. I mean, and you talked about medical supplies. There is no way in the future that any government will find itself in the situation that governments around the world have found themselves in. And uh, in other words, not being able to access medical supplies and, and relying on China and, and Turkey and other parts of the world. Uh, I mean, these are like critical to to the way that the responsibility government has to society to make sure that critical medical supplies and medical facilities are available, not in the mail, but are available as and when needed. So I think you'll definitely find that critical supply chains and critical industries will be a lot more bringing back on shore. And the old uh, paradigm or narrative of let's offshore it because it's cheaper and therefore will increase our profit margins will be countered by the fact that there are some industries that are critical to the sovereignty of the country and that that the supply chains associated with those industries should be kept onshore not offshore and i think you'll find back big businesses too like like tick banks i mean a, a number of banks have their call centers in the philippines or india uh, in fact, it, it, certainly one, if not two, of the major banks is a big part of their operation sitting in India, spreading financial numbers. And of course, when the when the virus controls were imposed in India, the, the whole back office or, or, or supply chain functions just stopped, and and the, w- w- the banks were unable to replicate those functions. Uh, back here in Australia because the, the skills and expertise and the resources that used to do those sort of things uh, had been allowed to go. So I think there'll be a, fre- a complete fresh look at the supply chain across a number of industries and there'll be significant political pressure or incentive to keep things on shore in certain industries, even if it's more expensive. Because the trade-off is, do you want to have the certainty of supply and spend 10% more or 20% more, or do you want to find yourself exposed to a supply chain risk at a critical time uh, because you're trying to save $10, mm-hmm. $0.10 cents in the pound? And that's no longer going to be an acceptable um, trade-off. Security of supply in certain industries is going to be first and foremost uh, the, the, the dominant decision-making criteria rather than can I get this done cheaper somewhere? And that will no doubt have the some downstream risk to the relationship and relationship with the likes of China in particular. Yeah, I mean, the relationship with China and Australia, you know, particularly our exporting um, a lot of product, natural resources and in, in, uh, agricultural products and wines, etc. I think that's still a huge opportunity for us, and that's why you, you get concerned about you get concerned about the supply chain, the the political noise that's going on right now um I, i'm not so worried about the supply of relatively cheap product out of china into australia because if you actually look at the trajectory of china over the course of the last 
15 years, but certainly over the course of the last five years, their, their costs have been rising domestically as the economy moves from being in much more into a middle class economy. And that cost advantage was, was beginning to be eroded. Mm-hmm. And China, in any case, wanted to move away from being the, you know, the factory to the world of, you know, commoditized cheap product and start to build a reputation for value added product. Mm-hmm. And, and countries like India and some other parts of Asia uh, were better placed to become the cheap source of manufactured product, that India in particular. But I think China's journey was already moving in a direction that its future was not going to be predicated on being a cheap source of manufacturing to the world. Really good point. Thank you, Joseph. Well, so specifically for the the group of brokers um, who keep a close eye on interest rates um, and the forecast for interest rates um, are quite low and will be for the longer term. Um, is there any um, other ways to stimulate the economy since rates cannot be cut other than sort of um, government sort of deficits? Well, government, government deficits are just going to be a feature of the next decade. <laughs> I mean, as ten, in, in terms of trying to promote economic growth, government investment in infrastructure we just talked about. Central banks can keep on printing money, but there's a limit to how much to the value long term that, that can create and the costs and risks that it can build up. So you're, you're right in a monetary policy sense, the toolkit is pretty short of a lot of tools that it had you know, in the past. And the focus now has to move much more to fiscal policy. And hence my comment earlier on that a feature of the the, the world economy, including the Australian economy, going forward is going to be a bigger, bigger, bigger government. Uh, now we, we most capitalist economies, to use that clumsy phrase, you know, have spent um, you know the, the time since the end of the Second World War, but certainly since the yeah, I mean, 1960s, trying to reduce the size of government. And grow the size of business and household, but I think the reality is that government government spending is going to be the major factor behind behind growth going forward. Not the only one, but the major one. Um, so while many of the emergency measures introduced have been great to put the economy in hibernation, you know, moratorium on evictions, your bankruptcy, the insolvency proceedings, um, how will the economy transition through these as it reopens, and what impacts will the backlog have? Well, I think the the economy, hopefully from next week, but certainly by the end of this month, will start slowly and progressively getting back uh, to business. It, it won't be a flick of the switch. It'll be a, a very orderly sector by sector um, relaxation and bi- back to business or back to some normality of business. But we, I would guess it'll take the best part of three, if not closer to six months for us to get all businesses back functioning uh, in some form similar to where we were pre-crisis. I, I don't believe that we're going to end up with a, a world that is similar to the one that we had pre-crisis. I think many business models will have changed, um, hopefully for the good. Uh, at the point that I've made to many business people that I've talked to is that you know we're in a highly unusual situation where we're all locked down um, and businesses are not able to function the way that they have been able to function normally. But don't waste the opportunity to have a fresh look at the business model because the, these crises do present an opportunity just as they do politically, they do in a business sense and in a personal sense to 
get off the dance floor onto the balcony and say, what are we? What is it we should be doing now to make sure the business is in a stronger position coming out of this and um, given the unique opportunity to be able to do that now um, and, and not waste the opportunity. So my sense is that there'll be a lot of businesses sitting down, business people sitting down thinking, right, the, um, you know, we, we did talk about a five-year journey to digitalization, for example. Now let's make that happen in a year. So, you know, what, what's happened in this crisis is it's forced all of us to do things that we might have thought about, but actually never put the effort into doing. Um, like webinars. I mean, I spent every all day long on web on video conferencing, and you know, so it, it, there will be changes because we'll learn new learn new ways of doing things. So I'm excited about that. Actually, I don't see any downside in that. I think there's and also this, the ability of businesses to adapt has been hugely impressive. Hugely impressive. So I think we'll come out of this stronger, um, but that that strength might be a year or so away. Because the economy won't go from pre-COVID-19 to post-COVID-19 in a flick of a switch. It'll be a gradual journey. Yeah, and, and that natural pivot um, to, you know, or bringing forward changes that were anticipated down the track are, are going to be critical signs of how businesses do evolve. So that's a really good point. And, and as you're saying, we're starting to see a lot more of that. So how will um, what is happening with the pandemic reshape, or it's a good continuation from what we're talking about, reshape um, the Australian banking sector and how banks operate, can you know, conduct their businesses. And I think you touched somewhat on that with banks that have got call centres overseas. Um, but how do you see this pandemic reshaping the Australian banking sector? Well, I think I think banks will put the foot down on on the digital transformation. That that's going to be that's going to become a bigger priority. I think. I'd like to think that banks will actually bring more people on to look after customers, so more customer-facing mm. people, because this whole crisis has highlighted how much of the cost-cutting uh, that has gone on has actually stripped the banks of a lot of, not, not just fat, but a lot of muscle in being able to adapt to abnormal situations. So I think a, a little bit more, um, a little bit more, cushion, if you will, in terms of being able to absorb, uh, manage situations that are not routine, more customer-facing staff, um, but certainly more digitalization. Um, I, I do feel that, and it'll depend just how how much bad debts the system throws up, both in the business sector and in the household sector, because as we all know, one of the high, bigger risks in the Australian economy has been the high level of leverage mm. in the household sector. That that's going to take a that's going to take a while to play out. I mean, particularly the investor market. Um, you know, what's going to happen to wages and and unemployment? What's going to happen to the Airbnb market? Which uh, you know, you read about a lot more property going from Airbnb into medium longer term rental. So there's and also what's going to happen in immigration? I mean, what going back to the China scenario? Will we see a lot of Chinese students deciding not to come back to not to come to Australia as they're Ambassador threat would be the case. Immigration, we're we're probably looking at a situation where the actual population in the country could shrink by a couple of hundred thousand as migrants on visas um, decide to return to where they came from. So there's a there's a whole lot of different dynamics at play. The only thing we know is that the interest rate environment is going to be pretty much at its current level for at least another 12 months. 
but there's too many other economic variables. And, and I think if we see a lot of bad debts in the banking system from from uh, the household sector, rather, then that could really cause problems and it will cause problems in, in, the, in the banks bias to preserve capital. They won't want to go back and ask shareholders for capital as NAB did a few weeks ago. They'll want to try and preserve capital. And, and that means that, of course, uh, as has always been the case, that the small business community, more than any other part of the economy, uh, gets a raw deal when, when balance, bank balance sheets are, con are capital constrained. So I, I worry about those things. I, I don't I don't get too influenced by the rhetoric or the PR that comes out of the larger banks. Uh, I think the proof is going to be in the eating. Let's see the let's see what they do in practice. But the response will be very much determined by the economy and how severe this correction is. And we don't know what that's going to look like yet. So continuing on with 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 that and the, the sort of changes in the banking sector, there has been a question from one of the brokers um, and post the latest round of bank profits and dividend and dividend announcements, do you believe that broker commissions could be reduced as a way to cut costs? Uh, should we be concerned by the large uh, provision uh, being set aside? Um, I'm, look, I'd probably add my, my views on that and I'm throwing it over to you, Joseph, but I, I definitely don't agree. I think the banks realise, in particular in, in this environment, the importance of the broker channel to grow um, to, to grow market share or, 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 if anything, to recover from what has what has happened. Um, I think also the um, the broker channel now, in particular, and we, we touched on that earlier. I think it was with you, Tom, or Frank. Um, that you guys are really busy at the moment, and I think that um, you're, you're proving your your value now to customers. You know, high value interaction, but low return for you, and that is only going to set you up for the long run in terms of um, your reputation with a your customers, and I think um, with the market as a whole. Joseph, did you want to add anything to to, to that comment? No, I, I I agree with your earlier remarks that the broker community and the banking system are now so integrally linked. I mean, mm -hmm. the evolution of the broker the broker economy, if you want to use that term, has been the banks outsourcing it essentially, not not intentionally, but essentially by stripping away so much service mm -hmm. and so many bankers from the front line that it, essentially what's happened is that they've accepted that. Their value chain, the bank value chain, has the broker as very much an integral part of that. So the idea of them trying to weaken that value chain just seems to me to be a very short-sighted and, and, and an improbable thing for them to do. Because they can't, the only way you'd ever do that is if you believed that you could go back mm. and things were done. You could say, look, we don't, we, we don't need the broker community anymore. Let's rebuild the, the banking model of a decade or so ago. That just isn't going to happen. That isn't going to happen. People, people know that the, that the broker economy is a, an important part of the banking economy, uh, and I, I don't see any steps being taken to weaken that. And, and I think that's only now uh, being strengthened with the, the amount of support brokers are giving their customers and the conversations I'm having with brokers is, how uh, they're supporting their clients through this or navigating where they need to go and how they need to support them. And further to that, Joseph, there is a question here from Chris 
Lloyd in Sydney. Um, what is your view on the cost of funds increasing for the top four banks, even though the swaps are at such low levels and the RBA in the market smoothing the rates down to very low rates? Well, there's been um, there's two there's there's been a there's been a uptick in rates that have been paid for deposits as banks have been trying to pull in more deposits, but still those deposit rates are very low. The big issue for the banks is that the cost of capital has gone up quite equity capital has gone up quite significantly um, because people obviously now look at the banks as a riskier investment now than they were six months ago, and you only have to look at the equity market to see that. There's a much, so there's a higher risk premium, um, and, and and therefore that will that will play a part in the way that banks are thinking about risking, about pricing lending, which obviously will depend on the type of lending. But I would say that in SME lending, they there will be a pressure to push margins up, given the higher capital allocation to SME lending than there is against mortgage lending. And just going back to my opening remark, the bank cost of capital, equity capital has materially increased over the last six months, as is evident in the in, in the equity market. So I, I don't see I don't see uh, any easing in in margins or, or interest rates that are being charged for SME lending, uh, nor I think at the corporate market as well. You'll see you'll see anything margins expanding in the mortgage market. Uh, that's a difficult one because the the intensity of competition around mortgages from the various specialist players and just the competition within the banks themselves has tended to keep that interest rate pretty much uh, efficient and transparent and and uh, much more subject to societal scrutiny and political scrutiny than any other interest rates are. Joseph, we've got another question from Shagun, uh, another broker from Sydney. Uh, how severe do you think a big bank credit contraction for SME lending will be? Well, that's a great question. I mean, we don't we don't want to see that happening, right? Because we we do we we do anticipate there will be a, a contraction over the next three to six months, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. That the banks are overwhelmed by the demands that have been placed on them by consumers and by small businesses uh, to deal with restructuring of existing loans or, or some form of relief or extended lending. And if you if you speak to any business that has been dealing with its bank over the last three weeks, it has been a nightmare. Um, it's been very slow in getting responses from them. You know, long-standing customers have been still waiting five, four or five weeks later. So I hope I so I think that's going to be a feature of the market from the big banks for the next three, four months. It'll ease progressively out. A major contraction, I only I only see that happening if we see bad debt levels. Going back to my earlier comment, if we see bad debt levels rising to a very high level, largely because of the level of debt in the more in the mortgage market, then you would you can see a big contraction of credit. And that would be uh, that would not be a good thing for the economy. You know, there's only there's only so much that we at Judo can do. You know, we've got ourselves, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've got enough balance sheet now for the next couple of billion dollars. We'll go back and get some more. But you know, the the SME banking market is a 350 billion dollar market. Um, we need to make sure that the the banks are all there supporting SMEs, 
um, because if any major contraction occurs, then it'll just deepen the severity of any economic crisis, and we, and we don't want to see that happen. So a very long-winded answer, but I think the thing to watch is bad debt levels. That's going to be the big issue. So final few questions. Um, what will the impacts of a reduction in migration over the next year be on the economy, Joseph? And uh, with regards to sort of new dwelling supply coming online and property prices in Sydney and Melbourne, there's a few questions in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, this is another big issue. If we start to see an outflow of people, particularly people on temporary uh, visas or and students, um, that's going to mean there's going to be much more supply than demand on, on in the market, particularly in, in CBD, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. That's going to put pressure on rents. Um, uh, so I, I, and that, that will obviously that they become then the preconditions for a, a significant correction. I think the chance of that happening is a reasonable prospect. Actually, the, the student thing worries me a lot, and I know from you know experience of people who are in the rental market. Um, who you know, I know four people who you know younger people who are. You, renegotiating the rents by saying to the landlord, look, you know, I've been paying 100, I want to pay 70. If you don't renegotiate, I'm leaving because there's more, there's cheaper stock on market. And and we all know how that movie plays out over time if it's done to a wide extent. So I think for the first time in a very, very, very long time, the profits of doom around the property market have got the chests puffed out a little bit. Uh, let's hope, of course, that that doesn't become the case. But but there's a lot of risk there today. That and and I think the net outflow of, of migration, particularly student and visa workers, and and also the this anti-Chinese sentiment, which is which as I mentioned before, and also the fact that people are not going to be crossing borders for the next year. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get the same inflow of tourists, longer-term tourists. Um, coming into Australia as we've enjoyed in the past, certainly not for the next year. And that's true around the world. So all, all of the pressure points are, are on the downside. Um, and let's just but let's just hope it's reasonably well managed. And, and it's not only um, lifting the restrictions, um, as you stated earlier, um, people, people are starting to realise being productive over webinars, less travel requirements, both locally, interstate and also overseas as well may start to play out. So the rethink of um, how they're running their businesses will, will be an important be an important feature. Uh, no question. I mean, no question. I mean, so many people who were kind of towing the water over working from home or, you know, who said, look, you don't have to go and see people to do business. You can do it over video. Uh, the last month or so, you know, has kind of taught us that actually this isn't all that bad. I, I, I personally strongly and forever believe in the importance of face-to-face mm. um, but the, you know some internal business means you can do this quite easily rather than jumping on a plane and going to Sydney but I mean what makes people different from other animals in the world is that we are social we are social animals mm. we like connecting with people we know that body language can tell you a lot more than than what's written or, or, or said by somebody uh, and relationships are built up by getting to know people face to face. And so I certainly can't wait for us to get back to that way of working, but but also from time to time using um, platforms like this to facilitate you know certain types of business, but not as a 
not as a, a structural shift in the way that people work. And no doubt this is the backbone of the relationship we've got with all these brokers online. It, it is catching up with them and, and understanding where they're at. And and you're right, it's, there's there's a lot to be said with the face-to-face -face interaction. Well, you know, we set our stall out. I mean, the, 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 I, I quite often get asked this. What, 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 in what way is Juro different and why can why would Juro succeed? And I, we've said, look, we've not, we're not, we've not invented anything new. Uh, what we have said is that relationship banking is at the core of SME banking. And relationship banking requires people who understand businesses and who can and can apply judgment, not formulas to businesses. And that we're unashamedly traditional in our approach to that. We, we've got modern technology. We've got one of the best operating systems in the banking industry in Australia. But that doesn't define Juro in the same way that it defines Neil banks or fintechs. Our technology is there to enable us to provide great relationships to our broker network uh, and to our underlying clients. And so that human element um, is going to be and will always be the defining characteristic of Juro, uh, that you're dealing with a person who's experienced, who can apply his judgment, who can give quick decisions, who will try and do the deal if it all makes sense and stack it up to make work. Uh, and we don't get lost in bureaucracy and we don't get lost in five, six weeks of um, internal navel gazing. Uh, our proposition is all about relationship banking as it used to be and as it should be, where there's somebody you can speak to, that, they, they, that we're not a big multi-layered organization when we, you know, in a couple of years time when our balance sheet is $10 billion of lending assets as it will be. Judo will be the same in terms of you know the way that we act with our our, the, our broker friends. Our core He's philosophy will change. I think that's giving yeah. us a bit of a wrap because we're close to twelve o'clock. Um, any final thoughts, Joseph? Before I sort of wrap up, there is one question from Tom Render here. Um, maybe we'll quickly get this one, sneak this one in, and then any final thoughts. But uh, you talk about you've, you've talked about taking advantage of the crisis aside from a booming webinar industry. What industries present opportunities, or do you consider less risky in the environment or in the current environment? Oh, I think I think the service industries broadly are going to continue yeah. to prosper. I, I, I do. That's been a journey in, in Australia for quite a number of years, but I think that'll that will continue to grow. Um, Education will, will, I think, new new models of education will grow. I mean, there are so many students now are, are become accustomed not so much not so much school kids, but more uh, university uh, undergraduate and postgraduate students have become much more accustomed to webinar style um, teaching. Doesn't work on all courses. I mean, you wouldn't want to be doing a degree in medicine or dentistry over a video link, but you. But, you know, if you're doing economics or finance, you probably can do it that way. Great. Thank you, Joseph. Um, any last thoughts um, to the audience? Um, no, I just, I mean, I, I just want to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're going to do this, but I just want to say that we are so well placed and so open for business and so keen not to waste the crisis that we want our, our friends and partners in the Boca community to know that they can look to us with a high level of confidence that we're here and that we want to make sure that we grow and help our clients 
become get through this first of all, surviving first, but but also making sure that they're ready to be really successful and come out of this. That's what we're here. That's what we, that's how we think, talk, and act. The views, information, or opinions expressed in the following podcast are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Any information provided is of a general nature only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. In particular, you should seek financial advice prior to making a decision. And our relationships with you guys is, is are so, so, so critical to us. So a big thanks for your support and for your uh, patience in listening to this webinar. George, over to you. Oh, no, I, I couldn't I couldn't have said it better. So echo your words, Joseph, and, um, you know, we, we do thank you for your support and thank you for attending the webinar. And, Joseph, thank you for making the time. Um, enjoy the rest of your day, um, all of you. And if there is anything you do need, please reach out to our team. I think we're close to 80 relationship staff strong now. So, um, you know, speak to your bankers, your BDMs, myself, the state state heads. Uh, we're here to help wherever needed. So thank you again and enjoy the rest of your day. The company is the owner or licensee of all intellectual property rights in this podcast, including but not limited to the copyright and any rights in the designs. You are permitted to use the podcast for personal use, but not for commercial use without a license from us. You may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy the podcast.